WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. This is Ken Meyer. Welcome to City Talk, and in my opinion, a very special edition of City Talk, because we have the gentleman that I like to refer to as the voice of the Boston Symphony, and a name who really needs no introduction. That's because he is Ron Della Chiesa. And Ron, I, I can't tell you how great it is to have you sitting here to be able to do this on your birthday. That's right, Kenny. I can't believe it. 80 years old two, today. Two significant things happened on February the, the 8th. Well, not February the 18th. One did, and that was your birth. And, of course, the other one, being a sports fan, the Yankees beat the Chicago Cubs in the 1938 World Series, and you were born. So tell us what it was like to grow up in that time. It was uh, every day was an adventure. It was all centered around the radio. The radio was the heartbeat of, uh, of the home, the pulse of, uh, of the living room or the bedroom. Radios were everywhere. So you were, it was total immersion in the world of radio. You couldn't get away from it. and You didn't want to. Did you enjoy being an only child? Absolutely. Did you? Yeah. I, you know, I grew up, uh, both of my parents were school teachers, and uh, my father was an artist. He taught art and drafting, and uh, my mother uh, was trained as an elementary school teacher, but she didn't go back into teaching until my father became ill, and then she went back and taught the third grade. But, you know, uh, home was a was a place where I learned about a lot about um, music, classical music, opera, big bands, jazz, radio drama. Uh, I had the radio on constantly, and both of my parents said, okay, you know, go along with it. They never said, turn the radio off, keep it on. <laughs> yep, that's where our childhoods were exactly the same, because mine were exactly the same way. They said, you know, if you want to listen to it, and, and you, like me, developed a fascination of radio itself. I did. I was especially drawn to the uh, music programming because I, I had picked up the trumpet and I decided to I want to play an instrument. Trumpet happened to be uh, my cousin's old trumpet. And when he went to West Point, he gave me the trumpet. Picked that up and I struggled with it. Then I started to take trumpet lessons. But at the same time, I was listening to the radio and I was particularly uh, captivated by the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts, hosted by Milton Cross. Yep, I know that name. And I would listen every Saturday afternoon to Milton Cross, and he'd say, Texaco presents the Metropolitan Opera. Good afternoon, opera lovers from all over the world. This afternoon, it's Puccini's La Boheme with an all-star cast. The Great Gold Curtain will be going up shortly, but first a, work fr a word from Texaco. <laughs> yeah, and that voice, and then he would describe the story of the opera, and uh, all of the voices came out of that radio. These wonderful operatic voices that I heard. My father also had a huge collection of Caruso records that he ah. would play in his Victrola, and uh, he had a natural voice. He couldn't read music, but he'd sing along to all the arias. So that was when I was about eight or eight years old that I started to hear that music, and it stayed with me. And then. You wanted a tape recorder. That's right. I, at the same time that I was listening to the radio broadcasts, 
I went upstairs in my bedroom, and I uh, built a little radio station. It had a, a small phonograph with a turntable. It played 78 records. I uh, built a microphone out of cardboard. Of course, the <laughs> microphone wasn't attached to anything. I started writing these scripts, uh, commercials that I lifted off the air from the real radio shows, and I began to do my own broadcasts in my bedroom. Of course, I couldn't hear how I sounded. That was the problem. <laughs> so I teased and teased until one day my father said, okay, let's get your tape recorder. I've had enough of you you're nagging me. <laughs> and we bought a VM Voice of Music reel-to-reel tape recorder. Do you remember that brand? I had one. You had one? I had one, yep. Yep. My parents bought me one when I was 10 years old, and I fell in love with it. Little push buttons on the top? Yep, yep. You'd hit record. Rewind, rewind, record, stop, play, and forward. Yep. Then a real microphone, you know. Yeah. And so I brought the tape recorder up into the bedroom, got rid of the cardboard fake microphone, sat there, hit the record button, and started to record my show. And then I played it back for the first time. I, I hit stop, then I hit playback. Rewind, then playback. Yep. You yep. know, there was a certain sound. Those <laughs> yes, there click, was. You know, yep. had a sound. And uh, I couldn't believe how awful I sounded. High voice and <laughs> had a terrible accent. <laughs> and I, I kept listening to it and said, this isn't right, you know. And I worked and worked very hard on that. I started to find out the problematic words, and I began to realize that in New England, in Boston, the letter R does not exist. <laughs> Forget it. Wipe it off the map. There's no such thing as R, R. <laughs> it's ah. <laughs> back here, way back in the glottis, you know. <laughs> so I wrote down all of those words that were problematic. Car, bar. Yeah. And then we put an A on the end of like do, do, doa. <laughs> door becomes doa. After, we drop the R in the end of words that end in R. Hmm. Later, after, never. <laughs> it's later, after, never. Hmm. Have you noticed young people today, they do it more, uh, they really do it do it up big? Oh, yeah. I'm going to see you later. I'll see you after. Yeah. And it goes up, kind of a glissando up, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was problematic, but I worked hard on it and was able to cure it. But uh, I still slip back into it occasionally with my friends. And you, you also did something that, in my opinion, really took guts. You took a tape to your hometown station in Quincy without an appointment. You just walked in the door. N- well, I can correct that a bit. Uh, my uncle, Emilio Della Chiesa, was the first Italian-American mayor of Quincy, my father's brother. Now, the owner of the local radio station, and you know the, the, the station, WJDA Quincy. Right. Went on the air in 1948. It was owned by the man who created it and built it and founded it, James D. Asher. So you got the call letters. Yep. J-D-A for James D. Asher. Very good. My uncle knew that I loved radio. He saw my little radio station up in my bedroom, and he said, I said, I'd really like to come down and, and see WJDA and have Mr. Asher listen to my tape. So being the mayor of Quincy, <laughs> he called up James D. Asher directly and said, my nephew's interested in radio. He's made a little reel-to-reel tape. Would you be nice enough to see him? And he said, sure, have him come down. So in that way, I, I did get my appointment. 
And I went in to see Mr. Asher. I was trembling with my tape. Went into his office. He said, come in, young man. What have you got there? I said, this is the tape recorder I've been working on. And he said, let's hear it. And he had a tape recorder in his office. All general managers had tape recorders in their office. Right? <laughs> Put the tape into his tape recorder. And I'm sitting there trembling. You know, my hands are all moist. <laughs> I mean, it's a great moment. Yep. And he hits the play button. And there's my voice came out. And it was awful. And I'm sitting there with him. And he's looking. You know, he's got his hands folded. And he's looking. He's listening. He listened for about three minutes. And he hit the stop button. He said, I must tell you, young man, uh, I appreciate you coming here, but you got a lot of work, a lot of work to do. He says, you got, you got a terrible diction problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized I had to go back and do it all over again and work even harder to get rid of the accent and lower my voice. So I started listening more and more to those great voices on the, uh, on the radio. Kenny, you know them. Ken yep. Carpenter. Yep. Don Wilson. Oh, gosh. Milton Cross. Yep. Uh, Hugh James. There was an announcer who I really enjoyed uh, listening to because he had the most mellifluous sounding voice, but he was overshadowed by his brother. His brother was Don Amici, and his name was Jim John. Amici. Do you yeah. remember Jim Amici? Yes, very well. He yes. had a beautiful voice. Yep. Very so sonorous. did Don. Don did too. Don did too. So I started to listen more and more to these great radio legends and try to incorporate their sound into my voice how they all sounded. You know, great voices, of course, as you know, coming out of New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and uh, worked harder and harder, and uh, went to, then attended Boston University, where they had a school of communications, where I had an opportunity to work on the local station, WBUR, the, community, the college station, WBUR, which at the time was student-run, and did my first... Uh, student radio show on that station. Mm -hmm. It was called The Sound of Jazz because <laughs> I was able to, I was able to uh, fulfill my love for jazz uh, with this show. That time I was playing 33 and a thirds because in 45s because <laughs> they'd already come out. And one day uh, I looked, I was in the studio doing my show. I just finished and I looked behind the glass in the control room. There was a gentleman standing there. He had horn rim glasses on. And uh, he came into my studio and he said, you know, I like the way you sound. Would you like to come and work part-time at the radio station I work for? I said, I'd love to because I could work nights and still go to school during the day here at BU. And he said, well, I'm Arnie Ginsberg. And that's how I met Arnie and that's how I got my first radio job. Now W-B-O-S. Yes, I remember the, remember the station very well. I used to listen to Kenny Mayer every Sunday night from 10 to midnight. Kenny Mayer, yes. Or midnight to 2 in the morning. So he did the show from his basement. From his basement, yep. yep. But I'm sure there are people that know the name Arnie Ginsberg but don't know much about him. He was unique in and among himself. Yeah, he was. He was an engineer first and foremost. And... Uh, he had a love for uh, for radio, and he also went on the air as as kind of a lark. Started doing the show nights. We see we were all ethnic radio during the day: Polish hour, the Italian hour, the Greek hour, music of the Near East. In uh, uh, all those shows, these hosts would come in and buy their buy their time, and uh, I was the English host for those radio shows. And I was, I was the guy who was responsible for getting them on and off the air. 
and not running over into another guy's time. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then Arnie would come on at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock with a show called The Night Train. And he'd play R&B, rock and roll. Yep. And had little horns and did funny little things on the air, little contests. And he caught on big time. He became one of the number one shows in Boston radio at that time, as you know. Yep. Woo Woo Ginsburg. Woo Woo Ginsburg, right. Yep. Ernie Woo Woo Ginsburg. That's it. Was it there that you did talk or was that at your next station, WBCN? No, you know, I never really did talk radio. Never. But, I, but I, you I, interviewed Cardinal Cushing. Yes, that was part of the uh, Irish Hour, <laughs> WBOS. Uh, that's in my book, Radio My Way. Yep. Wonderful story. Um, Tell us that story. Tommy, Tommy Shields, who did the Irish Hour every night from 8 to 9 on WBOS, very popular show because of the huge Irish population in Boston. And Tommy uh, uh, had a number of sponsors, but his biggest sponsor was Irish Airlines. So we decided to go over and interview Cardinal Richard Cushing, who, as you know, did the rosary mm-hmm. on uh, WBOS in the morning. And Arnie Ginsberg was Cardinal Cushing's engineer. <laughs> okay. Now, so we decided to go over and see Cardinal Cushing. We called up. We got an interview. He had just come back from Ireland. And Tommy said, well, this would be great because we could have the Cardinal kind of uh, endorse Irish Airlines. Because <laughs> we're not going to tell him do that. But we'll just ask him some questions about his trip on Irish Airlines. So we went over to his residence in Brighton, knocked on the door. Had, we had our little reel-to-reel tape recorder with us. Cardinal answered the door. Come in, boys. Come in. Where are you from? And uh, I said, or Tommy Shields, who was the host of the Irish House, said, we're from WBOS, your eminence. And he said, WBOS. Give my best to that gentleman, Woo Woo Ginsburg. He's the best. He's my engineer for the rosary. And I'll tell you, for a Jewish boy, he does a terrific job. (laughs) (laughs) So then we put the recorder down and we started the interview. And uh, I remember one of the questions Tommy asked him was, but your eminence, you just came back from Ireland on Irish Airlines. What was it like in Ireland? Terrible. (laughs) Rainy, miserable weather. And he says, you know, some of those Irish priests better get their act together. They spend too much time in the pub and not in church. <laughs> now, I said, well, how was your trip on coming back on Irish Airlines? The plane was crowded. The kids were noisy, unrolling toilet paper up and down the aisles. And anyway, hit the stop button. Thank you, Your Eminence, and we left. <laughs> Needless to say, that interview did not air. <laughs> you know, but that's a that was all part of it. You know, but a natural progression after WBOS, you went to WBCN. Yeah, that's right. I went to WBCN in, uh, I think it was 1960. I had graduated uh, from Boston University School of Communications in 1959 and got my first uh, uh, full-time radio job because WBOS was part-time, as I told you, doing the, doing the ethnic radio shows. I got my first full-time uh, job at WBCN, which at that time, uh, studios were at 171 Newbury Street in Boston's Back Bay. We were in an attic studio, and the station was all classical music. The call letters WBCN were created by a great radio innovator named T. Mitchell Hastings, 
who was one of the foremost innovators in FM radio. He knew Major Armstrong and T. Mitchell Hastings. He was a visionary. His dream was to create a network of radio stations all over the United States that would broadcast 24-7 classical music radio. And all these stations were tied together as part of the concert network chain, all classical music. So that was my first full-time radio job, and I became program director of WBCN in 1961, and I stayed in that capacity until 1968 when the American Revolution in radio uh, changed everything, and WBCM became one of the leading rock stations in America. I left and joined WGBH. All right, WGBH, how long did you, what did you do before Music America got started? And tell us about everything, including that program. Well, when I came to WGBH, actually, I had been working about a year part-time at WGBH with playing classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, had, I was still carrying on as program director at WBCN. I don't in, think you could do that today. Uh, yeah, I couldn't do it today. But in uh, <laughs> in nineteen, let me see. I was thinking, my nineteen sixty eight. Uh, T. Mitchell Hastings, the gentleman I told you who founded WBCN, was starting to lose money. The station was having difficulty paying their bills, and uh, he decided he wanted to look for a new format. And at that time, uh, a lot was going on in the country. You know, the Vietnam War. Uh, assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. There was really a revolution going, particularly among the young people. And uh, rock and roll was becoming very popular out on the West Coast. And uh, they decided to try that format at WBCN. And they brought in people that that you know, like uh, Sam Copper and, uh, let me see, uh, Charles Laquadera being their, their big heavy hitter. They brought Charles in from... Pasadena. And of course, the station was now a mixed bag. It was classical, it was uh, middle of the road, and it was R&B. And uh, they decided when uh, the R&B became very successful to dump classical music completely and uh, go with the format they call the American Revolution. And that really was a dramatic change in radio, as you know. Yep. WBCN became the leading uh, rock and roll station in America. The ratings went through the roof. The station was sold out. And, of course, I had to leave because I had really no connection with that kind of music. I was weaned on classical music. But I still had that opening at WGBH. <laughs> so I went over to WGBH, and they said, Ron, would like to have you come here full-time playing classical music. And that's how my career started at WGBH, uh, where I also started doing some television on Channel 2, particularly during the auction and the fundraising periods where they'd get on the air and raise money for Channel 2. So I was doing both TV and radio. Tell us about Music America. Music America uh, started in the afternoon when our program director at the time, John Beck, came in and said to me, Ron, we're dying in the afternoon. Our ratings are not going anywhere. It's such a mixed bag of programming. People don't know what they're going to hear next. I mean, uh, we had talk shows interspersed with educational shows, interspersed with music shows. There was no consistency. He said, why don't you get on the air 
and play things that you like. Can you imagine somebody oh. saying that to you? Boy, I would have loved and to I have said, done that. I said, well, how much time do I have? And he said, you've got noon to five in the afternoon. I oh. said, you mean five hours, Monday through Friday? He said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I said you know, I, I, love, I love film music. I love theater. I love Broadway. I love jazz. I love the American songbook. I love movies. Uh, he's, and I said, I, I love American classical music, Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, uh, Howard Hansen. He said, mix that all up. And I said, well, what will we call it? And he said, well, it's American-based, isn't it? Jazz is American-based. Broadway's American-based film. Why don't we call it Music America? I said, okay, <laughs> let's do it. And I went on the air, and I think one of the first pieces I played, now this had to be around 1977 or 78, I think one of the first pieces I played was Zarin Copeland's Appalachian Spring. Ah, yes. Followed that with Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Then I played some Duke Ellington. Then I worked in uh, some uh, Broadway musical by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, and then I played uh, uh, Frank Sinatra. So you had this eclectic blend of music that was everywhere. I'm saying to myself, who is going to listen to this? this? <laughs> but people started to listen, started to call me. In those days, you'd take calls directly at the station, you know, while the yep. music was on. Yep. I was spinning the LPs, and so I had some 45s then as well. And uh, the show started to catch on. And we noticed that during our fundraising period, real all the big pledges started to come in for the afternoon show, hosted by this guy that played everything. <laughs> and it was able to run for 18 years on uh, WGBH 89.7 FM, which is a pretty long run for a show that encompassed just about everything in the in the American the world of American music, you know. But you are also able to mingle with stars that, that would come into Boston all wanted to get on, and you got on your program. That's right. Anybody who was anyone in the world of show business, entertainment, or music usually uh, found an opening on my show. I'll give you an example. Mel Torme, who I heard was a very tough interview, uh, he knew what I was doing in Boston. And the thing is, the word spread to other markets, you know, to New York and Chicago and L.A., that there was this guy in Boston named Della Chiesa, who was uh, the guy to, the guy to see, the guy to get on his show because he was playing the music we knew and we loved. So I'd heard Mel was coming to town among the hundreds of people that I interviewed. I heard he was a tough interview, but here's a, here's a trick in radio, Ken. Um, an artist will never walk out on their own music. Never. <laughs> I knew Mel was headed over to the station from a hotel in Boston. He was playing, I think, at Symphony Hall. I had set up the interview with his PR person, and uh, she called, and it was around 2 o'clock. She said, Mel will be over here in about a half hour. We're taking a limo. So what did I do at 2 o'clock? Played Mel Torme. Nothing but Mel Torme. <laughs> I played early Mel Torme. I played Mel Torme with George Shearing. I played Mel Torme when he was a kid with, with just breaking out with the Meltones. He came right through the door of the studio. He sat down. I opened the microphone. I said, ladies and gentlemen, we're so honored to have Mel Torme here. He's going to be here at Symphony Hall tonight. And Mel said, Ron, I want you to know I've been listening to you on the way over in the limousine. <laughs> You've been playing the most beautiful, wonderful music anyone could hear on radio. And, of course, it was all Mel Torme I was yeah. playing with. So uh, that was a trick. 
<laughs> it worked. Yep. It worked with a lot of them. Is that how you met and got friendly with Tony Bennett? Well, I no, actually, Tony Bennett was a different kind of story because uh, I met Tony about 35 years ago when he was just uh, getting his second career going with his son Tony, uh, with his son Danny Bennett. Danny became his father's manager. Tony, uh, Tony's recordings were not selling at the time. I mean, people knew who he was. He was still an icon. But there was a whole new young audience that didn't know Tony Bennett. What Danny did was he got him on WBCN. He got him on the Howard Stern Show. And then uh, I met him when he was uh, in Boston appearing in concert. Is He came over to the station with his young daughter, his youngest uh, child, Antonia Bennett, sat down, and we hit it off right away as he knew that I knew all about his career, not only as a singer but as a painter, a lover of opera and art and so many aspects to Tony's career. And he said to me, my daughter, Antonia, is going to be coming to school in Boston. She's going to be studying at the Berklee College of Music. I told her about you and your wife, Joyce, and what a great cook Joyce is. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, indeed she is. She had a restaurant. He said, well, she'll be calling you. And sure enough, when she came to, to Boston, she called us, and she ended up uh, staying with us and living with us <laughs> uh, and became our surrogate uh, niece. And uh, Joyce became her godmother. So that was a really strong connection with Tony. Our guest is Ron Della Chiesa, certainly the voice of Boston and the voice of the Boston Symphony, also hosts songs with Sinatra, and we will get to that, certainly. Eighteen years is a long time. Uh, I have been at radio stations and seen people released and let go, me being one of them. How did you feel and what happened and why did they cancel Music America? Okay, well, what happened was they were starting to uh, eat away at the show. I told you originally it was noon to five. Then they started taking the first hour out of the show for the National Press Club luncheon. Then uh, they started taking the end of the show. They started taking another hour at the end. So uh, ultimately it was only on from one to four. And I could see the writing on the wall they had other plans. They were starting hit hit more and more into talk and public public affairs radio. So my show was very vulnerable because it was on in the afternoon. That's the time that leads into drive time. Uh, they uh, had something called, they had this concept in mind that they were going to uh, get rid of what, what I was doing and replace it with, with more news and public affairs. And little did I know that the audience became aware of this. Every time they started to cut away at the show, the audience would respond with calls and letters and protests until finally I was called in and they told me they were going to eliminate Music America entirely. Well, I uh, had a big farewell week on the show. I invited people like uh, Jess Kane in and John Henning and Robert Parker, the author of Spencer, oh, yeah. who was a big fan of the show. Matter of fact, he yeah. included him in, me in one of his books. Ah. Spencer was listening to Music America doing a stakeout. So <laughs> then they formed the Save Music America committee, and they started protesting at the station. They started picketing. They started saying, "We're going to withdraw our funds. We're not going to contribute. Bring Ron back." Tony Bennett even made an appeal from uh, the stage when he was down at Harbor Lights to Save Music America. There was the Save Music America committee. So here I was. I was I was trapped. If I had gone along with that, 
and said, no, I'm going to stand by uh, the committee. Or they had said to me, Ron, we can still keep you here hosting classical music. After all, that's what you did in the beginning. So I felt a great deal of uh, compassion for these people that wanted to save me and built their whole lives around listening to me in the afternoon. And they really did. I got some very poignant letters. Uh, and the, the offer that they would keep me on hosting classical music if I decided to go along with their changes. And I said, well, look, I've got all this time invested here in the station already. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, uh, a pension fund. I really don't want to lose that. I talked it over with my wife, Joyce, and I decided to stay at the station. And they offered me the position of hosting the, the Boston Symphony and also classical music uh, in the afternoon. So that's history. And so that's what you did. That's what I did. And the people that wanted you back, were they upset? They were. And uh, I would get letters saying, you know, you betrayed us, a couple of letters like that. And I, I said, well, I had to think about what I was going to do with my life. I mean, after all, I have an investment here, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful era. I loved it. Uh, I was glad to be a part of it. I did something that no one else in radio accomplished with the kind of thing that I was presenting in the afternoon. It was so eclectic and so broad and touched so many different areas of, of music that people loved. Uh, but yet I said, this is a new career for me. This is a new challenge. After all, I'm going to be filling the shoes of William Pierce, the voice of the Boston Symphony. And in October of 1951, the very first program that aired on WGBH radio before Channel 2 even went on the air was the Boston Symphony broadcast hosted by William Pierce with Charles Munch conducting. So, that's that's the way it went. All right. Having interviewed people, as I have, I'm sure you have run into interviews that didn't go as planned. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to play word association. If I say to you, Eartha Kitt. Oh, oh Eartha Kitt. <laughs> oh, man. And you know, that's a great story because – the bad ones stand out. The good ones, yeah. you know, it's the bad ones you remember. She did a show in Boston at the Schubert Theater. My gosh, it has to be 30 years ago. Called Timbuktu. You remember that? Uh, actually, no. It I was, remember uh, her, but I don't remember well, the, it was, it the was, show. Well, it was co-produced, <clears throat> and he was also in it by Jeffrey Holder. Do you remember Jeffrey Holder? He was a Jamaican, I believe, and he did yep. coffee commercials for Jeffrey Holder. Oh, sure. Jamaican coffee is the best, uh, something uh -huh. like that. <laughs> a very fine uh, actor, dancer, uh, terrific voice. He was in that show with Eartha. And, of course, the uh, agent for the show, the publisher, said, uh, called me and said, "Would you?" I had seen the show with Joyce. I love the show, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, who wouldn't love Eartha Kitt? She was yeah. a multi-talented yep. woman. She could do everything. She moved around like a, she was like the most feline cat-like woman I've ever known. <laughs> and she played the in uh, uh, television. She was in uh, Dick Tracy, wasn't she? As the I think so, yeah. The Catwoman or yeah, something? I yeah, I think so. Yeah, and so seeing the show, the publicist arranged the interview. She's scheduled to come in on Music America in the afternoon. I found one of her LPs in the library. And uh, I'll never forget the LP because it was damaged. It had a big chunk like somebody took a bite out of the side of the LP. Maybe that's why they knew that Eartha Kitt was coming in. <laughs> and the song was Lilac Wine that I wanted to play. Now, 
So I could still see lilac wine was there. The bite had not cut out lilac wine. It's a, so anyway, I, she came into the studio. I put lilac wine on. I played it. And I said, well, we're delighted to have Eartha Kitt here with us. I said, I was uh, very impressed with Timbuktu. What a wonderful show, showing off your many talents. She said, why did you play that lilac wine? That's one of the worst recordings I've ever made in my life. You don't know anything about my career. <laughs> that was the opening. I said, yes. I said, well, uh, well, I, I thought I'd play it because it's such an unusual song. It's a terrible song. And your coffee that you gave me is terrible. The coffee's wrong. I could see this was going downhill fast, man, and I had to get out. So there was some dead air, too. I asked her some other questions about her career, and she just would just pause and just sort of look down at her coffee, very sullen. So finally she left the studio, and she went up to do the Say Brother show, which was the uh, the black TV show, show we had mm-hmm. at the time. Very nice show, and a wonderful woman hosted it. Very gentle spirit. Her name was Barbara Barrows. She went up and she destroyed that show. She put everybody down. So I saw Barbara after the show and I said, Barbara, did she give you a rough time too? She said, it was terrible. I was, the woman actually frightened me. Mm. So flash ahead about 20, 20 years, I get a call that Eartha Kitt is going to do a benefit for the Price Rehab Center in Boston, I think at the Copley Plaza Hotel. Would I host it? I said, well, yeah. I said, I'd like to see Eartha Kitt again. So I went back to meet her before I introduced her on stage. She probably didn't even remember me. She was the nicest person. She hugged me, <laughs> and she put on a great show. That's only about one of maybe two that I had that were. The other one was with uh, Anita O'Day, the great jazz singer, mm-hmm. who came on the show, and that started out. It was a good interview. I was playing her records. We were talking about jazz and the musicians she worked with. And all of a sudden, I turned over, and she had left the studio, walked out in the middle of the interview. And I had no idea why, uh, because things, as I said, were going pretty well. Uh, Not as smooth as I expected, but she had a few caustic remarks about people she worked with that went on the air. (laughs) But I read later why she had walked out. She had, uh, had drug problems. And she was battling an addiction, and I read in the newspaper that uh, after she walked out of my show about a week later, uh, she went into rehab. So, you know, I can forgive that. So Now, just out of curiosity— All the others were like, wow, right at the top. I mean, everybody else, you know. Now, just out of curiosity, I remember the first celebrity I ever talked to was when I was in college, thanks to a CBS engineer who was also one of my instructors, and that was Phil Rizzuto. And when I got to BZ, the first celebrity I ever booked for Larry Glick was Duncan Ronaldo, who played the Cisco Kid. What do you remember about the first celebrity or two you ever had the chance to talk to? The first celebrity I had the chance to talk to, that would have been a great opera singer, Eileen Farrell. Do you know Eileen Farrell? I know the name, yes. Yeah. Eileen Farrell was the first crossover artist. That is, she's the first uh, singer who made the transition from opera, and I mean great opera. She sang major roles by Puccini and Verdi and Wagner to the world of the American songbook. She could sing Cole Porter, George Gershwin, Johnny Mercer, and she made an album in 1960 with Luther Henderson called I Got a Right to Sing the Blues. And the thing is with Eileen... When she sang 
the American songbook, she did not sound like an opera singer. She made the transition where she sounded like a jazz singer. I had been a big fan. She was, I was going to Boston University at the time, backing up to my days at BU at the School of Communication. And I did have an opportunity to do interviews then. And one of them was with Eileen Farrell. She was appearing at, at Boston College where she was singing Poulenc's Gloria, which is a great piece of music involving a soprano soloist, chorus, and orchestra. So I went out to visit Eileen with my tape recorder and uh, sat down after her rehearsal. And I opened with, I said, well, Miss Farrell, it's so great to have you here. I love the transition you have made from opera to the Great American Songbook. And I'm so glad you're singing at the Met. And she said, I'm not singing at the Met anymore. <laughs> she said, I, I don't care about that lousy place. They give me crap to sing. <laughs> and I said... Well, I'm sorry to hear that. She says, yeah, she says, they should, I really want to sing Wagner there. And she gave me this terrible opera to sing at the Met. Who needs the Met? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, I said, you know, Miss Farrell, the great Maria Callas once said after she left the Met, who needs the Met? They haven't got Eileen Farrell. And <laughs> that, of course, turned it all around, you know. But oh, yeah. Years later, I became very good friends with Eileen and included her in my book, Radio My Way. Mm-hmm. And my wife, Joyce, and I used to go down and have lunch with her in New Jersey, and she told some wonderful stories. She was really one of the greats. That was the first interview. What happened that you reinvented yourself uh, to be involved in regular radio, like WPO? Oh, well, yeah, well, that happened. That's another part part of the, uh, the Music America fallout. When that show ended... Uh, in addition to the deal I worked with, worked out with WGBH uh, uh, to stay on and host those broadcasts and do classical music, a man named Paul Kelly came to me of Kelly Communications. I think you know Paul. Yep, I know him. A yeah. big name, a giant in the world of sports broadcasting. Yep. Uh, he developed the Red Sox network. Right. He was the first person to get the uh, um, Red Sox on FM radio. But Paul happened to be a uh, big supporter and lover of uh, jazz, the American songbook, and Music America especially. So he allied himself with the Save Music America Committee, and he approached uh, WPLM, Easy 99.1 in Plymouth. The manager down there was uh, one of the best managers I ever worked with, Alan Anderson. Paul Kelly and Alan Anderson got together with the management at WGBH and worked out a deal where I could bring my Music America, Frank Sinatra show, down to WPLM and get it back on the air to pacify some of the people that were so upset in the Save Music America committee. So we did. he did work out the deal with Alan and WPLM where I could be a part of WPLM and also work at WGBH and WCRB simultaneously. That's also unprecedented. And I was able, 22 years, I've been gone for 22 years now, to do the show on WPLM. Originally, we were on uh, Saturday and Sunday nights, and now we're just on Sunday nights from 7 to 2 in the morning. But it's a seven-hour block, starting with uh, Strictly Sinatra, and then we move it into Frank Sinatra and his many friends, Mm -hmm. and then it's uh, the Great American Songbook and Music America. So that's how that started. I can still remember listening on the radio sometimes in the morning to Robert J. Lursimer. Am I pronouncing that Lertzema. right? Lertzema. Lertzema. Yes. And thinking, my gosh, I wish he'd talk faster. 
<laughs> well, you, you know, speed it up, boy. Speed it up. He had a style that was was his own. It was very lugubrious. There were long pauses, but he attracted a huge audience. He uh, delivered the news in a in a very lethargic way with long pauses. Someone once said that children were conceived between Lutzimus <laughs> pauses. Radio. I, li- I and like that. He he would do, uh, for example, an entire week of uh, of box music. You know. Mm-hmm. He'd do an entire week of Beethoven. Uh, he was very, very uh, clever at programming classical music, and he spent hours at the station. He would he would stay there from uh, six in the morning sometimes till ten at night. Oh my God! He was really committed to uh, to his his audience, and his audience followed him. He developed a uh, he, he developed a huge, huge audience in the in the Boston area. He was also on a New England classical public radio network syndicated out of WGBH. Mm-hmm. No, he became, uh, and his program was very highly rated, and it did do very well during the fundraising periods. I remember once when the station, WGBH, decided to curtail his newscast. They thought he was too long-winded and paused too much, and there was a tremendous outcry. Thousands of people called and wrote letters and said, no, don't mess with Robert J. Lertzema's newscasts. We love them the way he does it. Yeah. I could sit here and say to you, for example, Leonard Bernstein, and you would say, what? Leonard Bernstein at Tanglewood, when he hold, held court, was uh, like Gustav Mahler being there. He came in with a cape, he came in with an entourage, and uh, he was such a force. Leonard Bernstein was like uh, an electrical storm, you know, <laughs> lightning when he was on the podium. Tremendous. He got the orchestra to just... Uh, play like never before. Just like our, our new conductor, Andres Nelsons, mm-hmm. has that same kind of feeling. He's 39 years old and he's young and the orchestra just loves him. You know, you get up, get up in front of a hundred egos, it's tough. They, they, uh, they're there and they're all sitting there, okay, you show me and you're there in control and, you know, you've got to really show them that you've got the stuff and he has the stuff, so... The one thing I'll always remember about Leonard Bernstein was his young people's concerts. Yes, that's I right. I used to listen to and, those on TV. And this is an important those. year, Ken, for Leonard Bernstein. It's a centennial year. Mm-hmm. So there'll be a lot going on at Tanglewood this summer, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of Leonard Bernstein. Born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, attended ah. Harvard University, went on to become uh, one of the great uh, musicians of, of our time. How much of a connection, if any, did you or do you have with the Sinatra family? My connection with the Sinatra family uh, was through Frank Sinatra Jr., Frank's son, who uh, I got to meet several years ago through a friend of mine in New York named Lenny Triola, who is one of the last of the real New York-style Damon Runyon agents. (laughs) Lenny uh, said to me, Frank Sinatra Jr., and his uh, orchestra are going to be appearing at Tavern in the Green. He wants to meet you. I came down with my recorder. Lenny said, I've set up the interview. I got there. I heard the show. It was great. Frank came over and said, I'm sorry. I don't have time to do the interview now. Can we do it some other time? I said, fine. Flash ahead a few years, I got a call from a woman whose uh, husband uh, plays for Frank Sinatra Jr. His name was uh, Terry Anthony. And she said, Karen, her name was Karen Carbo, and she said, Frank Jr. wants to meet you. Come over to the Esplanade. He's conducting a symphony orchestra. I went over with my recorder. 
He apologized for what happened two years before, sat down and gave me about an hour interview. Oh, my goodness. And I realized I was, I was with a great musician who could conduct a symphony orchestra, knew everything about classical music, jazz, of course, his father's career. Yep. And that was my, my real good relationship that I developed with the, the Sinatra family. Uh, Joyce and I attended a couple of his concerts, had dinner with him, thanks to Terry Anthony, who provided the introduction. And unfortunately, a couple of years ago, he died at the age of 74 of a heart attack and a tragic loss because he was a great musician and he was perpetuating his father's legacy with his show. The Frank Sinatra uh, Orchestra appeared all over the world. Take you through his father's life in 90 minutes. It was really <laughs> incredible. And uh, to imagine living in the shadow of somebody like that, it wasn't easy either for him. He became very shy and withdrawn, too, sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you ever meet, Mr. Fr as, as Sid Mark likes to call him, did you ever meet Francis Albert? Never met him, came close, but no cigar. I'll tell you how close we came. It's a true story. Uh Maybe 25 years ago, Sammy Davis had died. Frank went into uh, hibernation, became very depressed, wouldn't perform, wouldn't see anybody. The telephone rang uh, in the morning. We were living in Boston in the South End. Picked up the phone. Hello, Ron, it's Tony Bennett. I said, <laughs> Tony, how are you? He said, well, I'm feeling pretty good. How are you and Joyce doing? I said, fine. What are you doing tonight? I said, well, I've got a benefit tonight to host. Oh, he said, that's too bad. He said, I wanted to invite you and Joyce to Radio City Music Hall. Frank is appearing there, and uh, this is the first time he's, he's come out of hibernation after he lost Sammy Davis Jr., and uh, he's shaking the blues away. Why don't you come down? Well, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. You can't say no to a benefit. You know what that does to your yep. career. I'm sure that if we had gone down, to Radio City Music Hall that night to see Tony to see uh, Frank Sinatra and sit in the audience next to Tony Bennett, <laughs> we could have walked into the dressing room. Nobody walked into Frank Sinatra's dressing room except people like Tony Bennett. You know that. Yep. Or, yep. Uh, now, I did hear a story, you'd appreciate this, from Paul Paravano. Oh, yeah. Okay. But yep. Did Paul ever tell you his Sinatra story? No. This actually happened. No. And you can call him and verify this. Oh, I... Paul Paravano is, is blind, and uh, as you are, and he developed a love for, for Frank Sinatra. Paul met Jilly somewhere. Now, I'm a little vague on where, and started talking to Jilly about how he loved Frank and had all his recordings. And Jilly said, would you like to meet Frank? And Paul said, would I? Of course. <laughs> and Jilly walked him into Frank's dressing room. Oh, wow. And Paul had a recorder with him. And he taped the conversation he had with Frank. Mm. Now, that, that's a true story. I haven't heard from Paul in a long time. I know he works for MIT. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me that story. He actually, Jilly walked him in to Frank's dressing room. I often wonder whether performers perform too long. Uh, I remember how bad Willie Mays looked oh, yeah. when he was with the New York Mets. Yeah. Frank Sinatra did two albums, Duets 1 and Duets 2, which, unfortunately, I thought were awful. Mm -hmm. he, didn't, he didn't sound the same. He couldn't sing anymore. Yet he did them, and if I'm not mistaken, both albums went platinum. 
That's I correct. Un- I don't understand it. Well, there are moments in some of those albums that where he does rise to the occasion a bit. The voice, of course, is not what it was by any means, but like uh, Patti LaBelle when he recorded Where I Went with Patti LaBelle. I mean, that's that's a winner. And What Now My Love, I think, with Aretha, uh, some of the duets albums. But no, he. I think he was talked into it by Phil Ramone to get back into the studio and record, re-record his big hits with some of his favorite singers. I've Got a Crush on You with Streisand yeah. is very good. It's very poignant. There's a... Uh, uh, he's, he's, he's actually speaking the lyrics rather than singing them. As opposed to Tony Bennett, who at 91 still has his top notes. If you listen to Tony now, he's still got those top notes. He rings them out. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing to, so, uh, to think that somebody can, can still do that yep. at, at, the, at the age of 91. It really is. Now, I've read, I've read two books, both by, I think, uh, Robert, Robert or James Kaplan on Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Sinatra as a singer, but I, I was upset to find out some of the stuff he was involved in mm-hmm. other than that, and it was kind of disturbing. Well, what, like, specifically? Well, yeah, stuff with the mafia, uh, stuff that he used to do in, in, in hotels with, with Dino and stuff like Throwing cherry bombs and all this kind of stuff, and and one take, you know, in a movie, this is it. Or and there was one movie I can't remember the name of it. He was all set to do it, and then just decided I'm not going to do it, and that was it. Um, well, he was very volatile. I mean, there's no question about it. And one of the things Frank demanded more than anything from his friends was loyalty. And if you crossed him in any way, or he heard something about that. You were you were eliminated from his life entirely in some cases, or in other cases, you, you know, he made up with those people and made a lot of enemies. But he was, you know, he, he was a kid from Hoboken, and he uh, he came up the tough way, and he oh, yeah. worked with a lot of those guys who were in the mafia and were in that business, and it was almost uh, natural that you came in touch with them uh, when you worked the business in those days. Mm-hmm. All of the clubs were owned by those guys, and... Uh, they played a hard game, and uh, he was able to work his way through it, but yet there was another side of him that was very sensitive. He paid all of the bills, for example, of people like Louis Prima, who became ill and oh, couldn't yeah. afford their hospital bills. Yep. Um, he helped prize fighters out who were down in the dumps with money. One of the things he wanted more than anything else was not to people people not to know that, that he, he was a philanthropist, it. Or that he right. did it. Right. And... Former Mayor Ray Flynn told me a story that when he came to Boston once to perform, uh, he said to the mayor, I just want you to do one thing. I want you to donate all my proceeds to the kids to build them playgrounds and parks. But the idea is if don't ever let them know where the money's coming from because you won't get it only till after I pass away. And Mayor Ray Flynn told me that story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's good and bad in all of us, I guess. I saw Sinatra twice. And won't forget either performance. One was at Boston Garden, and another time was in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed them both. He so, didn't like Boston, you know. I didn't know that. No, the reason I'll tell you the reason for that too is Sage Kuzovitsky, who was the uh, director of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for many, many years, for yep. twenty-five years, uh, was a tough Russian uh, conductor. Uh, an autocrat, and he demanded the best from his musicians. Uh, didn't have any love for American music or American popular music or jazz at all. He was a classical purist. 
Arthur Fiedler, on the other hand, was a great populist. He did a lot to popularize American music. He made a Beatles album, you know. Hmm. Back in 1943 or 44, when Sinatra had broken away from the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and was appearing at places like the Paramount Theater, causing riots among the Bobby Soxes, <laughs> Arthur Fiedler heard about this young Frank Sinatra, and he went in to see Kuzovitsky because Kuzovitsky was his boss, the leader of the Boston Symphony. Mm-hmm. Arthur Fiedler was the music director of the Pops. And he went in and he said to Maestro Kuzovitsky, Maestro, there's a young man who's making quite a name for himself in New York these days as a singer. I would like to invite him to appear in Symphony Hall with the Boston Pops. Kuzovitsky said, what is his name? He said, his name is Frank Sinatra. Kuzovitsky paused, glared at Fiedler, and with a big scowl said, I've heard about this crooner. (laughs) This crooner will not appear in Symphony Hall. Well... Arthur Fiedler had to tell Frank Sinatra that. How do you think that affected Frank? <laughs> now I know why he didn't like Boston. Oh, now he didn't like Boston. He did come back a couple of times, but for benefits. You know, he, for, for Tony Conigliaro, yeah. he appeared in Symphony Hall, and a couple of other times maybe, I'm not sure when or where, maybe two, three times in Symphony Hall. So he did appear in Boston, however, never, ever with the Boston Pops. I, I saw him in 19... 19- and they asked him to come back, you know. They, uh, yeah. So, yep. yeah, I saw him in 1975. BZ had a contest, and they were giving away 103 pairs of tickets to Frank Sinatra, a concert, and they had some left over. So they Left in- over? Yeah, they had, they had wow, extra that's... tickets. <laughs> so they asked us, you know, if you want to see Frank Sinatra, put your name in, and we'll have a drawing. So just as a lark, I did, and I won a pair of tickets to see Frank Sinatra perform at Boston Garden. And it was lucky a, you. Oh, it was electrifying. I'll never forget it. Just take one moment and Go tell ahead. us about your TV show. Oh, yeah. Well, we didn't touch on that, did we? No, we did not. Okay. Well, it started down in Hull. Uh, which is the town where Nantasket Beach is located. Mm -hmm. They say, if you can't get to heaven, go to Hull. (laughs) You like that? I like that, yeah. Uh, So I became involved in the Hull community. I became a member of the Friends of the Paragon Park Carousel. You remember Paragon Park? Oh, absolutely. With the roller coaster? I used to take the boat over there. All right. Well, the carousel is the only remaining attraction left from the Paragon Park. So I'm a member of the Friends of the Carousel we do a lot to keep the carousel in good shape, and they refurbish the famous horses. People adopt them. So I met Peter Seitz, who is the director of Hull Community Television. And Peter called me and said, Ron, how would you like to do a TV show down here? And I said, fine, I'd love to do it. And he said, well, what would you like to call it? And I said, well, what about senior citizens doing cool things that are still alive and not dead yet? And, <laughs> you know, He said, I like it. Let's call it Elder Cool, Elder Cool. And so we've done 15 shows on Hull Community Television, and I invite my friends who are still active. One for one of my friends I went to the first grade with, his name is George Mallett. He was a major state trooper at Logan Airport, and George's job, you'd love this, was to escort movie stars around Boston. Oh, boy. Get them on and off the plane. Movie stars, and I mean big ones. John Wayne, yep. Judy Garland, I could Robin Ryan. That. Yeah, I could live uh, with that. Yeah, he lived with that. He's been on my show. <laughs> He's an expert on movies. I had Johnny Cristoforo on, who writes about his days attending uh, East Boston High School. He just got a book out. Uh, Joyce comes on and does cooking shows with me. Ah. 
Uh, I had Loretta LaRoche on, the laughter lady, who is very funny. We're going to see her at the opera today. Mm -hmm. And it's still running. And uh, we've done 15 shows already. You can get it on uh, uh, HullTV.net. HullTV.net. They all stream. Just go to Elder Cool. Well, it has been a joy having you here. I have looked forward to this. You are an institution. And I just hope you keep going and going and going and don't stop because you are a part of history and a part of Boston, a member of the Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Uh, as you um, are, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, as I are. Kenny Meyer, too, <laughs> and he belongs there, man. Well, and so, and so do you. You have done a great deal for the world of radio. I mean, there's there's so much more we could even talk about. But I, I thank you for coming in here to do this, and it's really been a treat. And as far as I'm concerned, the best has come. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kenny. What a pleasure to be here with you. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk. <laughs>